Well, we skipped last week in our study, and so I want to just sort of briefly recap verse tw- or chapter 23 uh, to reiterate the point, some of the main points of the doctrine of God's faithfulness. We saw at the beginning of that chapter, and I'll, I'll just quote three scripture references. In Deuteronomy 7, 9, God is referred to as the faithful God. He's called the Holy One who is faithful in Hosea chapter 11, verse 12. And Peter, in 1 Peter 4, 19, refers to him as the faithful creator. God is clearly set forth in Scripture as faithful. That is, worthy of our faith because of His enduring uh, faithfulness. He remains faithful to Himself and therefore is worthy of our trust and faith. And I'll read some of these quotes from that chapter again just to to bring our minds back into the, the realm of this topic. Our God is the faithful God whose righteousness and power make Him infinitely more worthy than the greatest confidence we could ever place in Him. In other words, He's worth more trust than we'll ever have to put in Him or could put in Him. God's faithfulness extends not only vertically to the heavens, but also horizontally throughout all generations. God is powerful enough to do all that He has promised. God and His promises are unchanging. Our God is the reliable God. He's faithful. He's powerful enough to bring to pass His promises. He's he's immutable so that His promises must remain uh, true and, and and be brought to pass. It was reiterated throughout that lesson a truth that I've, we've seen time and time again, and that is that these, all of these attributes of God bear some relationship to one another. You, though we do study them distinctly, in God they are one, and even as we try to pick them apart, we realize, well, there's, there's only so far that we can pull them apart before we, they snap back together because they are so closely related. And, and that's how that chapter ended, by associating God's immutability with God's faithfulness. And the idea is, because God cannot change, therefore He must remain faithful to His promises and faithful to His people. And so it ended with that well-known verse in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, where God Himself says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. That is, Indeed, a wonderful truth that we must keep in mind. It speaks to God's immutability. He doesn't change. But what does that mean except that He's going to be faithful to all of His promises? And I hope that it's a a precious thing to you to be able to come back time and time again and to find that God has not changed. That your salvation in Christ and the promises that God has made to you are still in effect and that He will be faithful to bring them to their consummation. Every time you come back to the Scriptures, I promise you this, every time you come back, you'll see that God is just as faithful as He was the last time you saw His faithfulness. We get to come and see this time and time again. So God is faithful. Now, this week we move forward to chapter 24. And so I'll I'll pick up with the beginning of the chapter and I'll read the opening 
paragraph there. It says, The faithfulness of God is revealed throughout all the Scriptures. There has never been one instance in all of history where God was not absolutely faithful to every word He has spoken. In the following, we will consider the implications of such faithfulness. How should we live in light of the absolute fidelity of God? As I've said before, the fullness of God's revelation is really just a revelation of the fullness of God's faithfulness. Every, every page, it seems, tells us of God's faithfulness. Both books of Revelation tell of God's faithfulness. We read the Scriptures, special revelation. We cannot help but see God's faithfulness on every page. Well, then we turn to the book of, of general revelation, nature, the world around us. We look outside and we see seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. All of these are testimonies to the faithfulness of God. I guarantee you, every one of you are assuming that at some point this evening, the sun will drop in the sky and it'll get dark. That, that It has not crossed your mind whether that would happen or not. You assume it. That is just a testimony to God's faithfulness. He's the one who said that that would happen. Because all of creation declares the glory of God, and the glorious God is the faithful God, and it, it is His glory to be faithful, then all of creation is constantly, sometimes with a whisper, sometimes with a shout, but all of it is constantly shouting or, or telling of God's faithfulness. And so like we've seen of, of, with everything else that we've seen of God so far, so also with His faithfulness, it demands a response. There's no way that we can truly be convinced of God's faithfulness, really, and just remain the same, not change. We cannot see and know and believe that God is faithful and continue to live like those in our world who actually deny the faithfulness of God. It requires a response. And so he gives us three points here, three points that would summarize our response to God's faithfulness. Number one, we should trust in God. Number two, we should trust God's wisdom and direction. And three, we should proclaim God's faithfulness to all. So then number one, we should trust in God. And here we have four texts, the first of which is Psalm 31, 14. So if you'll turn with me there. Psalm 31, 14. He says in this verse is found one of the briefest, most powerful declarations of faith in all the scriptures. So we're going to see what, what is communicated here and how talk about how we ought to imitate this. Psalm 31, 14, David says, But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. Now, the note says that two great truths are communicated in this text. First, there's a relationship, a direct relationship between faith and confession. He says the former, former will lead to the latter. So notice the, the faith of David is set forth where he says, I trust in you, O Lord. That's his faith, his trust. And then comes 
a, a description of David's confession. I say, you are my God. And what Mr. Washer is saying here is, faith, where there is faith, that will always lead to or produce a confession of that faith. A, 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 a telling of it in some way. Very often it's multiple ways. Verbally, outwardly, there will be a life of faith. As uh, Christians we would say baptism is sort of a public and, and uh, uh, sacramental display or, or, or confession of faith, profession of faith. But it's going to come out. No one, no one who has true faith keeps it all bottled up in secret so that nobody ever really knows. No, it, it comes out. If you think about the nature of our state in sin and our natural enmity with God, we would have to affirm that for anyone to go to God, as David is here, he's talking straight to God, for anyone to go to God and say to God, you are my God, we understand there has to be some work of grace. Some gracious habit has to have, have uh, been implanted in the soul which then looks outward and claims the unseen God as one's own God. That doesn't happen to natural men. I hope this is something that you do in prayer. Talk to God and say, you are my God. That's why I'm coming to you. So, so much that we could learn about prayer in, in this study on the attributes of God. That, that gracious habit given to the believer is faith. Faith is a gift from God. If you believe, that's God's gracious gift. Now the alternative, again he's saying faith leads to confession. Well the alternative would be confession leads to faith. That if you say it out loud enough, eventually you'll believe it. Well that doesn't make any sense. Well how can you confess something if you don't actually believe it to be true? There's, you see obviously the problem with that. It doesn't work. So he says, or faith says, we could say in the heart, Faith says, I trust in you, O Lord. You are the faithful God. You're worthy of my faith. You're worthy of my trust. That, that's faith in the inward soul, the inward man, or the inward uh, confirmation. But then it is out from that that a confession comes forth. You are my God. Or from this faith within me, I can confirm that truth verbally and in other ways, you are my God. One leads to the other. He says, second, faith involves a personal relationship. True faith requires more than a simple acknowledgement of God's existence. He must be more than a God or even the God. He must be my God. And that's what we see in the language. David says, I trust in you. David doesn't say, you're worthy of someone's trust. He says, I trust in you. He doesn't say you are, or he does say you are my God. He doesn't say, well, you're someone's God. No, he says you are my God. That's showing that personal relationship. David is having a personal conversation with God. Having our eyes open to the faithfulness of God is a fruit from the same Holy Spirit who gives faith in that God and who also gives utterance to our confessions. Where the Holy Spirit comes and does a work, He produces, He gives the faith, and He gives life to the utterance, so they both come out at once 
taking hold of God as one's own. So, so yes, our response to God's faithfulness should be trust, which leads to confession. You are my God. The second text is Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. So we can turn there. Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. He says this passage contains both an admonition to trust in God and a promise to those who obey. So listen, we'll read the text and then we'll look at those two halves. First, the passage. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. So he begins with the admonition, which is verse 4. An admonition is sort of a, uh, uh, it means to propel with words. It's sort of like an encouragement or an exhortation. You're trying to move someone in a direction with your words. So here's the admonition. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. That's the admonition. To trust in the Lord and to do that forever. In, In other words, trust Him with your eternal soul. And the note says, our trust in God is to be founded upon the reality that He has revealed and proven Himself to be an everlasting rock. So, trust in Him. But then, verse 3 gives us the promise. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because He trusts in you. Or, you keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. The note says, trust in God results in one of the rarest and most sought-after commodities among all of humankind. Peace. Peace is a gift from God granted to those who have set their minds to trust in Him. Now listen. I hope that you're listening to this. For those whose minds are fixed on God, there is a promise of peace. God gives peace to those whose minds are fixed on Him. Question. Are you at peace? Are you at peace? Just broadly in in your life, are you at peace? In particular circumstances that happen in your life, are you at peace? Or is your life one of constant turmoil, especially mentally or in your soul? Is it just constant turmoil? Is your mind or your thought life a whirlwind of information and possibilities and fears and stresses and what might happen and what about this and I don't know? And Is that the way you are? Be honest. Are you at peace or are you not at peace? Now, if you're not at peace... The only conclusion that we can draw from Scripture is that the problem lies in one of two things. Number one, God is not faithful to His promise. That's the first option. God told a lie. Your mind is fixed on Him, but you're not at peace. He lied. Or, 
Your mind is fixed on things besides God. Your mind is not stayed on Him. Now, because God is faithful, that I have to deny the former and affirm the latter. I cannot say, well, God just didn't keep His promise in your situation. I have to say, if you're not at peace, if you're at turmoil, if your mind is a whirlwind of, of constant stress and worry and anxiety, all, all I can say is, then your mind's not fixed on God. Your mind is fixed on things of turmoil and stress and anxiety. Now, I understand that some people really don't care about that. Some people hear that, and they say, well, I hear what you're saying, but perhaps you know the, the concept of, of constant worry for them is... It makes them feel like they are dutiful. They're being busy. This is just a part of, of life. It's being constantly worried, and so I won't change anything. But listen, God's given us a promise, and as I'll, I'll say later on, He doesn't want us to be in constant turmoil. That's not His desire. He wants us to be at peace. Since God is faithful as we've already determined, you should trust Him. You should fix your mind on Him. Fix your mind on His faithfulness. Fix your mind on His promises. Again, if you're not at peace, it's because you're not fixing your mind on Him. The next passage is Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. He says, here here is found still another important text regarding the believer's trust in God. According to this text, how does our knowledge of God's faithfulness sustain us even in the darkest circumstances? How does our knowledge of God's faithfulness help us to persevere in the midst of trials? And then, is there a relationship between trust and God's Word? So the text and then three questions. Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? That's the text. Now, three questions. How does our knowledge of God's faithfulness sustain us even in the darkest circumstances? Think about it. Even in the darkest circumstances. 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 Does God encounter circumstances? No. God has no circumstances. God is outside of the concept of of circumstance. God's faithfulness, remember, is connected to His immutability, which is connected to His eternality or His eternity. God cannot change. And so whether there are dark times, hard times, or great times, God's the same. God hasn't encountered the circumstance as you have and I have. So in dark circumstances, we have to remember that God is still just as faithful as He was in sunny circumstances. He's not changed. The circumstance does not change God. Even if the circumstance is so dark that we can't see anything, and we have to say, I don't understand, I can't trust my own mind, I can't trust my own thoughts. I can't trust my perception of reality. I am blindfolded in the dark. Even there, what do I know? God is faithful. 
He's not changed. So we fix our minds there. And that's how we are sustained in the darkest of circumstances. Question. How does our knowledge of God's faithfulness help us to persevere in the midst of trials? There, There could be many ways, but this is what came to my mind. God's faithfulness, remember, encompasses His promises. He's faithful to His promises. God has promised that every trial is for our good. He's promised that. God has promised that every trial is for our sanctification and ultimately for our joy in Him. So we know, we know God's promise that in, even in the midst of a trial, on the other side at some point, we, we can't say where, but we know that at some point on the other side of a trial is joy and holiness Christ-likeness and delight in God. The trial can yield no other outcome. It's not possible for a trial in the life of a Christian to lead to anything else other than gladness and joy and sanctification and delight in God. Now that, that might be next week. That might be next month. That might be the second after you breathe your last until you actually experience the fullness of that, but you have to understand, it can't not lead to that. And that helps us, that strengthens us to persevere in the midst of trials. As our our Lord, we know, endured the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before Him. He knew on the other side of this can only be good. Why? Because He knew that His Father was faithful. Question three. Is there a relationship between trust and God's Word? Well, he said in the psalm, In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. Uh, There's clearly a connection, right? We want to know what is it. Well, in God's Word, that's where we find all of these assertions. That's where we find God. This is where God tells us, I am faithful. This is where we see God's faithfulness described and explained. What does it mean that God's faithful? Well, He makes promises and He keeps them. He declares the end from the beginning. We, we, we begin to understand what it means that God is faithful. In God's Word, we see it displayed time and time and time again. My people will go down into Egypt for 400 years and I will bring them out. Well, keep reading. What happens? He brings them out. It's just, that's, that's all the scriptures are over and over and over again. If you sin, I will curse you. If you obey, I will bless you. Keep reading what happens. When they obey, they're blessed. When they sin, they're cursed. Over and over, God says it and He does it. He says it and He does it. That's where we get to see that. When we go to His Word, we get to see that. He's never failed to keep one single promise. Even if we say, oh, the Bible's such a long book, it takes so long to read from, from Genesis 3 to Matthew 1. But if you'll just get there, you'll see the first promise He made, He kept. The whole, that, that's all it is. So I say this often, and I mean it. I, I, if we're not saturating ourselves in the Word of God, we are cutting ourselves off from that which is vital to our perseverance and, and our sanity in this world. That you, it, it has to be. Do whatever you have to do to be sucking in large quantities of Scripture. 
I don't, I don't care what it is. Do what you got to do. Listen to it, watch it, read it. Whatever, whatever you got to do, you got to get it. You have to get it. There's clearly a relationship between trust and God's Word. If, if you're lacking in trust, you're lacking in faith, it's probably because you're not reading or meditating or thinking enough on God's Word. You might read a lot, but not really pay attention to much of what you're reading. And that's not going to do you any good either. So imbibe it. Saturate yourself in it. The next passage is Psalm 62. Verses 5 through 8. He says this here in these verses brings what we've learned to a powerful conclusion. In this text, the psalmist makes a declaration of faith and then gives us an admonition. And he says to summarize these. So, Psalm 62 verses 5 through 8. Have first, the, the declaration of faith. Please pay attention to passages like this. My soul... Wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest, the rock of my strength. My refuge is in God. Notice, he exhorts his own soul. To wait for God in silence. I've pointed this out before. The psalmist talks to himself. Remember? People say you're crazy if you talk to yourself. I say you're crazy if you don't. Talk to yourself. Exhort your soul. My soul. I said to my soul, wait upon the Lord. He spoke to himself. And I would say that few things could be considered a more clear display of faith than waiting in silence. And we'll see in a moment what that kind of means. Waiting in silence. The note says, The psalmist declares his absolute dependence upon God. God is his hope, rock, salvation, and stronghold. His hope of salvation and glory rests upon the faithfulness and power of God. So he declares his faith. All right, and then we have the admonition that comes to us. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. He admonishes the people of God, it seems to me, to do the same thing that He had done. Here's what I'm doing. Do the same. Now, there is an irony here. Because he said at the beginning of the verse, my soul, wait in silence for God only. But then when he admonishes the people to do the same, he says, pour out your heart before him. Now we might think that there is a, a contradiction between wait in silence and pour out your heart before the Lord. I don't think there's a contradiction here. Because waiting upon the Lord in silence is not in action. It's not doing nothing. Okay? But, and also, pouring out your soul before Him is not always vocal or even verbal, even mentally verbal. Sometimes pouring out your soul is just sitting in silence. 
Very often, the pouring out of the soul before God in silence, when words cannot be found, when the need is too great to even articulate, you say, I don't even know what to say. Or maybe the way is so dark that you don't know what to pray. You don't have words. There's nothing you can say. All you can do is sit in silence. That is the very substance of waiting upon the Lord. I'm here in the presence with a groaning soul before the God who sees and knows and hears. And I don't even have words. I can't see Him. I can't see the way. I'm just sitting quietly. You can't articulate thoughts. God hears the soul being poured out. He understands the groaning being poured out. And why would anybody do that? Unless they knew that God is faithful. He sees, He hears, He knows. He knows the outcome. He knows what I, what I don't know. He sees what I can't see. I just sit here and trust. And maybe He will give me words and maybe He won't. But I sit and I wait. That's what He's admonishing us to do. So we should trust Him. That's the first point. We should trust God. If you believe He's faithful, then you ought to trust Him. Now, the second point takes this a little bit further. We should trust in God's wisdom and direction. Trust in God's wisdom and direction. He says, trust in God is not just in the mind or heart. It affects every aspect of our lives. To trust in God is to turn over the direction of our lives to Him and to be guided by His Word. What do the following texts tell us about this truth? The first one, Psalm 37, 5. You can turn there. Psalm 37, 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. The note says, the word commit comes from the Hebrew word galal, which literally means to roll. The idea is that we are to roll the entirety of our life upon the Lord. The phrase your way refers to the direction and activity of our lives. I think I've told you all before I, I noticed James Durham saying this often, roll yourself upon Christ, roll yourself. And I just thought that was a cool picture. I never knew that this was a, a, a biblical idea, the idea of rolling your way upon Him. And, and the, the imagery in my mind was almost like a, 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 an utterly incapacitated paraplegic or something that, that they can only, you know, all they can do is roll, you know. Roll yourself on the Lord. That's the picture. If we believe that God is faithful, that is worthy of our faith and our trust, why would we keep any part of our lives back from Him? If we believe He's faithful, why would we roll some but not all? Why would we do that? That doesn't make any sense. Why would we shy away from absolute surrender? Why? Oftentimes we're fearful, we're nervous, we think... We, we recognize absolute surrender is going to cost. It's going to cost me. We're, we're afraid of that. And so we hold things back. I know that some people would use this phrase differently than maybe we would. But why would we shy away from, from a, a chapter and verse please mentality? Why would we shy away from saying, until I see the word of God guiding me in that direction, I can't move. Sorry, 
well, we, we, need, we need this and we need this and time is ticking and, 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 and this and there are deadlines and, and all these things. Why would we be afraid to say, sorry, I'm, I'm captive to the Word of God. I, I have to wait. I can't move. Well, we're afraid. What are we afraid of? Well, the world might move along without us. Some, some, great, uh, some, some great deal might pass us by. We might miss out on something. We're afraid to roll ourselves upon God. That doesn't make any sense if we believe He's faithful. We must roll our lives over on the Lord. Commit the whole thing. If, you, if you're knowingly holding back one thing from the Lord, you are walking contrary to Him. Now, I'm not saying that we actively know all of the things that He's requiring of us. He brings things to light. And we have a decision to make. Well, I'm going to surrender. Am I not going to surrender? But if you're actively saying that part of my life, I'm, I'm not going to bring it to the Lord. I, I've, I've got a way about that way, and I need to do it my way. And if I don't do it my way, then, then it's not going to produce the outcomes that I need. You're, you're walking contrary to the Lord. Everywhere that we feel that little sneaky fear, we know, what I'm, we, we know it, that little fear... That total and complete resignation to God is going to be harmful or impossible or hard. Every time we feel that, I know you felt it, we must remind ourselves, God is faithful. And then ask Him to cut that cancer out of our souls. That's all it is. It's deadly. It's not helping. It's not helpful. Commit your way to the Lord. You can't lose in that way. You can only win if we will commit our ways to the Lord. Turn to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We know this passage, I believe, probably pretty well. I know our family sings this passage probably three times a week in family worship. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Now this has given us the same simple truth. Commit yourself to the Lord. But notice the language that it gives. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, the entirety of your inner being. Everything, positively. That's the, the, the command. Trust in Him with all your heart. But negatively, do not lean on your own understanding. Do not lean on your own understanding. Cut th the throat of your own understanding. Go to God and confess and admit, I don't understand. I don't have understanding. So that you can lean upon Him. It might even be helpful for some of us to return and meditate on all of the times in the past where we have trusted on our own understanding and it's just resulted in failure and mess. Just to remember, you know every time you do this, it doesn't work. It's not going to be different tomorrow. Just remember that. Treat your own understanding like a holographic bridge across the Grand Canyon. Not an ounce of weight is to be trusted on that bridge. It might look great. It is not going to get you across. Don't touch it. Stay away. 
Acknowledge God in all of your ways. Look to Him. Look to His Word. Look to His guidance and His wisdom and beg Him and plead from, from Him. I need to be taught. I need to understand. Doing this and this alone guarantees you the promise, He will make your path straight. He will. We don't, we don't believe it because we won't trust in Him with all our heart. We still lean on our own understanding and we wonder, why, why are the paths of life for me so confusing? Why, why is it just always so, so topsy-turvy? Why is it always so confusing? Do you ever just stop and wonder how much that you have wavered and tottered and stumbled in uncertainty and all of the inner turmoil that comes with that in life circumstances simply because your approach was, I will trust in the Lord with most of my heart and lean a little bit on my own understanding. And we, and we wonder, we, we flounder and we wonder, well, why is it this way? Well, life's just so hard and I just can't... And I can't figure it out. And, and we begin to think our, our circumstance is special and, I, and different rules apply to me, etc., etc. No, it's because you won't follow the simple rule. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on any of your own understanding. Trust His ways and His directions. They are good. The next passage is Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 8. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 8 is a story of two men or a tale of two men. Verses 5 and 6, we meet the man who trusts in himself. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitants. So here's the man who trusts in himself. He leans on his own understanding. He's like a bush in the desert. And when you picture that in your mind, you, you get the, the, the idea. A bush in the desert lacks what it needs to live. It lacks nutrients and nourishment. It's languishing. A bush in the desert is not going to last very long. It's headed for death. He says he will not see when prosperity comes because it's not coming. It'll never come his way. Only hardship will come his way. It's like living in stony wastes or a land of salt without inhabitant. You see, in the plant world, salt is absolutely destructive. Salt sucks moisture away and leaves the land to be useless. You know, we have even stories in Scripture where they would demolish a city and... and wiped the land clean and they would raise it with salt. They sowed salt as if they were planting a field, but they sowed it with salt instead of seed just to ensure that after we leave, it's going to look like a desolate wasteland for years to come. Grass won't even grow. Salt is destructive, and that's the point. If you trust in yourself or in any other man, anything other than God, then you are going to be languishing. You're hastening towards death. You've cut yourself off from life. It's like taking poison. To trust in yourself or any other man, anything besides God, would be like watering your garden with grass and weed killer. What do you expect is going to happen? Death. It won't work. But the flip side of that is the other man who trusts in God. Verses 7 and 8. 
Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. I think we could say Jeremiah knew his psalms. He's just quoting from Psalm 1 pretty much. The blessed man is a man who trusts in God and he receives these rewards. To trust in the Lord leads to flourishing. It leads to strength. It leads to health. It leads to stability. It leads to fruitfulness and even fearlessness when your trust is in the Lord. Well, what circumstances might be coming down the road? They're not going to change God. I'm fearless. I have nothing to worry about, nothing to fear. What we see here is that God wants us to grow and be fruitful. He doesn't command our allegiance out of just some sort of tyrannical egotism. I just like people to pledge their allegiance to me. That's not how God is. He's not requiring our surrender because it somehow puffs up His ego. He commands us to trust in Him because He wants what's best. And He's the only one who knows fully what is best. He knows what's coming around the corner, but we don't. He wants us to do good and He's faithful. Or He wants to do us good and He's faithful to do it if we will trust Him. So trust in His wisdom and His direction. Third point that He gives us in our response, we should proclaim God's faithfulness to all. Proclaim God's faithfulness. He says it is not enough that we trust in the Lord with all our heart and order our lives according to His word. We must also share His faithfulness or the faithfulness of God with others. So the first text is Psalm 40, verse 10. Psalm 40, verse 10. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. Now why would he have to say this except that it is very often our tendency to hide what we know of God. We lean in that direction for some reason. We are very often less desirous for the good of others than God is desirous of our own good. We don't reciprocate it back or we don't we don't we don't uh Pay it forward, so to speak. What God has done to us, we're very slow to, to extend that to others. We should be ready, able, and willing to speak openly about God's faithfulness. Now, sometimes that might just be a brief, brief word of thanksgiving or of testimony. This is not saying that in every circumstance you're going to have the time to have a long conversation. Sometimes it's just a little thing. And other times there will be occasions where you can elaborate longer on God's faithfulness. The point is being ready able, and willing to speak. Anything else that we experience or discover that's truly captivating to us, we are so quick and so excited to tell other people. We have phones now that we take pictures of everything and send it. There are probably billions of trout in the world. My son called a trout yesterday. Guess what? Send dad a pic. I thought it was awesome. But, I mean, there are lots of trouts. There's only one God. And yet we come to an experience 
something of the faithfulness of God, and we're not very quick to act so excited. If we, we see a, you know, a, a cool car or we see a, a, a car accident or something amazing, you go to, up to wherever it is and you see the ark, or you want to tell people, you're not going to believe what I saw. Man, we were riding down the road yesterday and we saw this or we saw that. We, we we're very quick when we see something that catches our attention so quick we want people to know it. You will not believe who I ran into at the store the other day. We experience God's faithfulness. We're quiet. It seems to me that when it comes to the most captivating, most astonishing, most out of this world experience that we have in knowing God and experiencing His faithfulness, we clam up, we get quiet. All of a sudden... We're silent. Now, I'm not saying it's the same as all those other things. There is a great difference, and I think that is often contributing to how we feel, but it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. Don't be afraid of being considered strange. Don't be nervous about people thinking that you're extreme or you're a fanatic. Tell what you know about God, even if it's just a little. Start with little things, if that's how you have to work your way up. But we should be ready and willing to speak of God's faithfulness the apostles in Acts 4.20 said, We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We ought to ask that God would pour out among us a spirit of that holy lack of restraint. There's a lot of things I could, they, they could restrain themselves from, but speaking of what they had seen and heard, that was what they could not restrain themselves from doing. We cannot but speak. Well, the one thing we're telling you to do, don't speak in this name. Sorry, we can't do that. It's, we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. You're going to have to kill us or something. But it's coming out. How, how different are we? We have to be compelled and pushed and driven often to say anything. For them, we can't help it. Tell of His faithfulness. Psalm 89 verse 1. Turn there. Psalm 89 1. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. Again, God's faithfulness should be often on our lips. As much as we want to grow in our understanding of doctrine and, and, and in very often systematic ways and we want to know the ins and outs of theology and, and what we might consider the deeper things of Scripture... For all of our love for those things, we ought to be twice or three times or ten times as emphatic about conveying simple, beautiful truth like God has been so faithful to me. God is faithful. Anybody can understand those three words. I don't have to give you an elaborate scheme to help you understand what God is faithful means. Everybody can say that, you see? Nobody needs a seminary class to say that. God is faithful. And he says that he will make it known to all generations. All generations. At the top of the list of what our children should know early and hear often should be this truth. God is faithful. Children, God is faithful. God makes promises. God keeps his promises. God's never failed. God never will fail. If you put your faith in God, you can't be let down. You can't lose. God's faithful. 
God's faithful. If you know anything, know this. God is faithful. Make it known to all generations. Now, I'll conclude with his last point, which is a point of application. He says, it is not enough merely to affirm the truth that we should make known God's faithfulness to others. For we must actually put it into practice. The application of the application is very often the hardest thing. What's the application? Make it known. Well, what's the application? Do it. That's what he's saying. We must ask ourselves whether we have proclaimed God's faithfulness to those around us or we have kept it concealed in our hearts. Based on the above text, explain how we might be better witnesses to the faithfulness of God. And you have to answer these questions in your own heart. Have I proclaimed His faithfulness or have I concealed it? And only you can answer that for yourselves. I'll, I'll, I'll close with this. I think that we all know that nothing in all creation or history is a greater testimony to God's faithfulness than the simple gospel of grace found in Jesus Christ. We would say if you want to see God's faithfulness at its climax and at its greatest, right there it is. Right there you see all the promises of God in their terminus in Christ Jesus. All the beneficiaries of God's promises find their representative winning God's promises for them in the gospel of Christ. So, anytime you share the gospel, you're telling people of God's faithfulness. And on the last day, every man, woman, boy, girl, every person will experience God's faithfulness on the last day. Either in heavenly bliss or eternal torment. Either way, God's promises or His threats will be finalized and every human being, every mouth will declare in so many words, He has been faithful. He did exactly what He said He was going to do. It's my fault that I didn't heed His promise or it's by His grace that I was able to see it. But nobody will say, I, I think He missed a spot right here. No, every mouth will be stopped and all will see that God has been faithful. Let's close in prayer together.